Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our online gathering. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Beckler, and I am serving as the music director here at Scarlet City. Uh, I'm excited to be with you guys and worship with you this morning. I know it has been a stressful past week, and specifically past couple of days for many of us, as we await the results from the election. But I want to remind us of some truth. Uh, we need to remember actually what unites all of us. Uh, we need to be reminded that we are all sinners in need of grace. But we're image bearers. We've been invited into this family through the work of Jesus Christ. So we worship him, the one true king, this morning. Hear this call to worship out of Psalm 95, verse 67. It says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. church. I'm Elise Walter, and I'll be leading us in prayer and scripture reading this morning. This week, we're going to pray for our nation after this past week's election. So please pray with me. Father, we affirm that we are ultimately part of your kingdom and your family. You are unchanging, and you are Lord, regardless of who our earthly leaders are. We ask, though, that you give those earthly leaders wisdom. We ask that every vote would be counted and counted accurately so that there will be no doubt about the results. Please heal the division in our country and help our church and, our church and the Christian church throughout the nation to be part of that healing. Give us all compassion for each other and for the struggles and challenges of others. Help the church to humbly love and serve others. And we ask you to help leaders from both parties to work together for the good of our nation. Amen. This week, we're continuing our series in Revelation, and we'll be looking at three sets of divine judgments that are from Revelation chapters 6, 8, 9, and 16. There's a lot of reading this morning, but Revelation was originally intended to be listened to. So... I would encourage you to close your eyes and just hear the words and try to imagine the pictures that you're hearing 
when you talk about. The symbols and illustrations are used to evoke emotions and awaken our imagination to the evils in our world and the justice of God. We'll start with Revelation 6, 1 through 13. I looked on when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the living creatures saying with a thunderous voice, Come! So I looked, and here came a white horse. The one who rode it had a bow, and he was given a crown. And as a conqueror, he rode out to conquer. Then when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, Come! And another horse, fiery red, came out. And the one who rode it was granted permission to take peace from the earth so that people would butcher one another, and he was given a huge sword. Then when the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come! So I looked, and here came a black horse. The one who rode it had a balanced scale in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat will cost a day's pay, and three quarts of barley will cost a day's pay. But do not damage the olive oil and the wine. Then, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. So I looked, and here came a pale green horse. The name of the one who rode it was Death, and Hades followed right behind. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill its population with the sword, famine, and disease, and by the wild animals of the earth. Now when the lamb opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been violently killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, How long, sovereign master, holy and true, before you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a long white robe, and they were told to rest for a little longer until the full number was reached of both their fellow servants and their brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I looked when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, and a huge earthquake took place, and the sun became black as sackcloth made, with, made of hair, and the full moon became blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth like a fig dropping its unripe figs when shaken by a fierce wind. Revelation 8, 6-9 Now the seven angels holding the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was thrown at the earth so that a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain of burning fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures living in the sea died, and a third of the ships were completely destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a huge star burning like a torch fell from the sky. It landed on a third of the rivers and, and on the springs of water. Now the name of the star is Wormwood. So a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from these waters because they became poisoned. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. And there was no light for a third of the day and for a third of the night likewise. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying directly overhead, proclaiming with a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to those who live on the earth, because of the remaining sounds of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to blow them. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and smoke rose out of it like smoke from a giant furnace. The sun and the air were darkened, and it was smoke from the shaft. Then out of the smoke came locusts onto the earth, and they were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. The locusts were not given permission to kill them, but only to torture them for five months, and their torture was like that of a scorpion when it stings a person. In those days, people will seek death, but will not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Revelation 9.20 The rest of humanity, who had not been killed by these plagues, did not repent of the work of their hands. So they did not stop worshipping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone, idols that cannot see or hear or walk about. Revelation 6, 1 through 16, 1-12 through 
Then I heard a loud voice from the temple declaring to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl. Then ugly and painful sores appeared on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Next, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood, like that of a corpse, and every living creature that was in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they turned into blood. Now I heard the angels of the water saying, You are just, the one who is and who was, the Holy One, because you have passed these judgments, because they poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, so you have given them blood to drink. They got what they deserved. Then I heard the altar reply, Yes, Lord God, the all-powerful, your judgments are true and just. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was permitted to scorch people with fire. Thus people were scorched by the terrible heat. Yet they blasphemed the name of God, who has ruling authority over these plagues, and they would not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, so that darkness covered his kingdom. And the people began to bite their tongues because of their pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their sufferings and because of their sores. But nevertheless, they still refused to repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and dried up its water to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Revelation 16, 16-19 now the spirits gathered the kings and their armies to the place that is called Armageddon in Hebrew. Finally, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. Then there were flashes of lightning, roaring, and crashes of thunder, and there was a tremendous earthquake, an earthquake unequaled since humanity has been on the earth. So tremendous was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. So Babylon the Great was remembered before God, and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's furious wrath. Thank you, Elise, for reading our passage this morning, a, a, a large passage at that. And before we hop in, I want to share a few brief announcements. Uh, first, on the third Wednesday of every month, we provide a meal for the community. Eric and Megan Vineyard had this up, and we would love for you to serve if you're able and interested. You can register on our Church Center app, or you can email Janelle at scarletcitychurch.org for more information. Also, we are taking steps to move our in-person worship gathering back indoors as the weather gets colder. We've consulted with our health team comprised of medical professionals, with other churches and their best practices. And also, we sent out a survey to get feedback from, from you, from the church. And we are taking those, the, those steps. The earliest we would open up for indoors is November 29th. We will still be hosting our outdoor worship gathering uh, as, as temperature and climate allows, uh, but we'll continue to share information about moving inside. One of those bits of information is we need uh, you to consider serving. Two ways you can serve is on the tech team, uh, led by Danny Jackson, and this would be helping with live streaming and our soundboard and, um, and running slides. And you don't need to have a vast background in technology. If you have a sm smartphone, that's, that's uh, good enough. We can, we can train you. And also on our hospitality team to help ensure we practice social distancing, wearing masks, and then, and then cleaning, wiping down all of the major touch points before and after each worship gathering. So please, if you're, if you're considering coming to the in-person worship gathering, consider serving. You can find out more information and sign up by emailing Janelle at scarletcitychurch.org. Well, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of, of Revelation, and we encounter a large passage this morning, and we're reminded that Revelation is a book about the unveiling. It comes from the Greek term apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to unveil. It's saying all is not as it seems. A pastor named John is writing to a collection of churches in, in modern-day Western Turkey who are experiencing incredible persecution under Emperor Domitian toward the end of the first century. And amidst this widespread persecution, many are asking, where is Jesus? Is he reigning? Is he in control? 
And last week, Pastor Jacob uh, preached from Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And there's this incredible vision of, of the throne room of God, depicting a God's place, the dimension of God and His reign and His rule. And there's this beautiful picture, and it really gets to the center of what Revelation is about, the center of the message of Revelation. In chapter 5, verse 5, it says that the one on the throne, he was holding the scroll, and he, um, and there were seven seals on the scroll, and this scroll depicted, it, it harkens back to Daniel chapter 12, and and the judgment of God. But no one seemed to be able to open the scroll to break the seals. And so John begins to weep. You know, God's people, they're wanting God to bring deliverance and liberation. So he, he weeps. But then it says this in chapter 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered Thus, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. They're saying, listen, the promised Messiah, the true king of Israel and the world, he is on the throne and he can open the seals. But then look at this. Then I saw standing in the middle of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the middle of the elders, a lamb that appeared to have been killed. John hears. He hears the message. There is the lion, the conquering one, the powerful one, the Messiah, He can bring liberation, but when he turns and sees, what does he see? The Lamb. Friends, this this image encompasses the whole message of the Bible. That in the place of God and power, the one who can bring liberation, in the place of the lion, is a lamb who was slain. This is the beautiful message of the gospel, the beautiful message of the kingdom of God that is, it is counter all human kingdoms. Revelation 4 and 5 present this beautiful vision of the Lamb ruling. But then that leads us now into chapter 6 through 19 or 20, depending how, how one interprets chapter 20. And chapters 6 through 19 are some of the most misunderstood and challenging passages in in all the Bible. And so I want to take just a few minutes right now to to bring a little bit of clarity to to talk through some of the the tension points in understanding Revelation 6 through 19. The first tension point and question that that the modern reader needs needs to address is, what is the time period of Revelation 6 through 19? Some, some people believe this is merely future, that Revelation 6 through 19 and 20 are, are uh, pro- prophetic accounts of a future, that there will one day be a, a rapture, and then God will bring judgment on a seven-year or three-and-a-half-year period, and the events recorded here in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 depict this future event. Others believe that this is merely referring to events of the past. This is called the preterist view, or the belief that this letter was was simply written to the early churches that John has in mind, and this recounts just the events that they experienced. But others believe, and, and I hold this view, that this is actually symbolic and representative of the church age as a whole, from Jesus's resurrection to his ultimate return, which is described in chapters 20, 21, and 22 of Revelation. And in between this period, which certainly encompasses what the 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 churches that John is writing to, what they experience, we see these symbols and images which speak to the nature of systemic evil and wickedness in the story of humanity. It's why it doesn't call out Rome by name, but it uses symbols like Babylon and the beast, the dragon, and these describe the the wickedness that has pervaded the human story for generations. And so I believe this refers to the age we're in right now, the church age, beginning with Jesus' resurrection and ending with his return. But then the next question that the reader needs to, to address is, what is the struggle, an issue, that this is addressing. 
In order to understand something, we need to know the context and the struggle to which it's speaking into. Is it seeking to answer, when will God return? Is that what John and this vision from the Lamb, from Jesus, is seeking to answer? And I do not believe that is the case. John is not writing in order that the reader will know the timing of the return. Rather, John is writing, again, to these, le- to these churches in a particular context. He's writing addressing the question, where is Jesus now? If I see, if I'm experiencing oppression under the lordship of Caesar, under the lordship of the emperor of Rome, what about the lordship of Christ? Is he reigning? Is he on the throne now? And this is what John is seeking to address. When we experience pain, when we experience persecution, when we experience chaos, is God still in control? And this leads us into our third observation that the reader needs to to understand. What is the way that this answers that question of Jesus' reign? And there's really three parts, and we're going to get into that this week and then next week and the, the following week, these next three weeks. There's, there's three critical parts in Revelation 6 through 19. First, there are three sets of divine judgments. These are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. The seven seals in, chapters, in chapter 6, the seven uh, trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, and the seven bowls in chapters 15 and 16. Three sets of divine judgments, and they unveil, they reveal the the Lamb is bringing judgment and justice. They unveil for us the, uh, the, the new exodus that God is bringing for His people. The second way that, that Revelation is answering that question, how is the Lamb reigning and ruling today, is by giving this interlude. After each of the judgments, it will zero in and talk about the church. And in each case, it talks about the protection that the church will experience. There are 144,000 people sealed. That's symbolic, not a literal number, but symbolic of the protection of God's people. There are two witnesses um, given. And, And what this is answering is the role of God's people amidst persecution. How what is our role, our place in that situation and that work. And then lastly, in chapters uh, 11 or chapters 12 through 14, we see the cosmic battle between the dragon and the satanic trinity and the lamb and the the trinity of God. This cosmic battle. And there it's unveiling. It's it's, um, describing for us the true nature of evil, how it works in our world today and how the gospel and how the triune God combats it. Next week, we'll look at the role of the church, the, the army of the Lamb. And in three weeks, we're going to look at the cosmic battle, and I want to encourage you to uh, follow along. But this morning, we're looking at these three sets of divine judgment. And again, this is the new exodus. We have justice through liberation. And, and just we need to acknowledge that right now, that for the modern reader, you know, probably as Elise was reading this passage, and as you read this, we just wince every time we we read a passage like because of the great day of their wrath has come who is able to stand with it the wrath of god the judgment of god these are these are challenges for us today they're challenges for the modern reader and we wonder is a loving god compatible with a judge do we need to pick what what about these notions of the mercy and, and love of god And here's what we'll find. You cannot have justice without judgment. Sin is so pervasive. Sin so dominates the self and then systems of our world that one has one of two options, and this is what we'll look at today. One can either repent and embrace the way of the Lamb the way that undermines the kingdom of mankind, which pushes, puts man and self at the center of the kingdom, or one can repent of that and embrace the kingdom of the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who gave up his life for the flourishing of others. One will either repent or be dominated by evil and wickedness. I mean, we see this in 
in life as we look at history. I mean, Egypt in, enslaving God's people. Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. God brought plagues and warnings. He wouldn't let him go. It eventually took great judgment for Pharaoh to release God's people. We saw this in, in American history with slavery and the wickedness of slavery. It took a war. It took force to require people to let people walk free. Sin is so pervasive that we will find ways to justify it. God must intervene to bring true eternal liberation. That's the big idea for our passage this morning, how judgment is required for justice. Now, as we zero in at these three sets of divine judgments, another question we need to ask, are these linear? In fact, do they happen? Is it the, it begins with the seal judgments and then trumpets and then bowls? My understanding and the understanding of many is actually these are three sets of judgments, each describing the nature of evil and wickedness in the world from a different angle. The seal judgments Look at judgment and evil and wickedness through the lens of the church, through the lens of the persecuted church, the ones needing deliverance. In chapters 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments, these are a warning, a call to repentance. This is the angle of the persecutor. It's God's warning to the world. And then chapters 15 and 16, the bold judgments, this is judgment through the lens of God. And so let's look at these three sets of divine judgment and how they teach us that God's judgment leads to justice. First, let's look at the, the seal judgments. And what we see here, again, this is through the angle of the persecuted church, what we see here is that God exposes the full scope of sin. How does God's judgment lead to justice? God calls out sin. He exposes the full scope of it. In Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 it reads, I looked and when the lamb opened and I looked on when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. Now the scroll represents again as I mentioned this is from Daniel 12 it represents God's judgment. And the seals was wax put over a scroll and only the one who had authority to unveil the scroll to open the scroll could in fact open it. And this speaks to the authority of the lamb to bring God's deliverance, to bring God's judgment. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to what is commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In verse 2, it says, And so I looked, and here came a white horse. The one who rode on it had a bow, and he was given a crown. And as a conqueror, he rode to conquer. The white horse symbolizes human rule. That when you place mankind at the center of the kingdom, he will conquer others. He may claim to bring peace, right? You had the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But he always brings peace through bloodshed. He always brings peace through conquering others. The white horse represents light, uh, mas or it represents evil masquerading as justice. The white horse represents the conquering of man. And then in verse 4, we see the red horse. And the one who rode on it was granted permission to take peace from the earth so that people would butcher one another. And he was given a huge sword. This reflects mankind's propensity for war and violence, to use power to control and take from others. And then the black horse signifies economic exploitation. Look at verse, the end of verse 5. The one who wrote it had balanced scale in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat will cost a day's pay. Three quarts of barley will cost a day's pay. But do not damage the olive oil and the wine. What is he saying here? The poor will be unable to afford daily expenses. Food. But the rich, they will be overflowing with olive oil and wine. This refers to the economic exploitation under the kingdom of man. And the final, the pale green horse, represents death itself. 
And so here we have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This, re this reflects uh, human systems, human rule, human power. You have evil masquerading as light, riding on a white horse. You have war and violence. You have economic exploitation, and it ultimately leads to death. In other words, <laughs> just another day in the story of humanity. But God, what He does here is He, he brings it to light. He, bring, he allows the evil to ride out into the light. In order to experience healing, in order to ever address a, a problem, you need to bring the real root of the problem into the light. You need to be able to name it if you're going to, going to address it. If you visit your doctor, if you've been experiencing uh, chronic uh, fatigue and, and tiredness, and, and you go to the doctor and you say, hey, doc, I don't know if anyone calls the doctor doc, but a doctor, um, you know, you're feeling tired, fatigued. If he or she says to you, well, uh, have you tried drinking caffeine? Or uh, you drink coffee, if you tried Red Bulls? <laughs> if that's their response to you saying you feel fatigued, then you, you might need a different physician. Because any good doctor is going to ask questions. They're going to want to, they, they, they know that fatigue is merely a symptom of an underlying issue. They'll want to know, is this stress related? Does this have to do with your diet and nutrition? Is, is it a lack of sleep? Is there a chemical imbalance? They're going to want to know. They're going to, they're going to want to bring to light the problem in order to have a real lasting solution. God is bringing to light. He's calling evil for what, for what it is. But then also, he's, you know, you know, any doctor who responds to your pain and says, with, you know, this is just all in your head. You know, tired, being tired, not so bad. Just, just deal with it. Don't worry about it. It's all in your head. No big deal. Anytime someone minimizes a struggle or a pain, that, that is not helpful. And that's true in a small sense in feeling fatigue, but that is true in a massive sense when it comes to acknowledging injustice and evil and wickedness in the world. For the church or God's people to ever minimize violence and its effect, for God's people to ever to ever minimize economic exploitation, we have right here in, in the Bible God calling sin for what it is. God brings the problem into the light and He said, and He calls injustice, He calls it out. And this, it, whenever you're experiencing pain and persecution, this in and of itself is a gift. When people turn their blind eye or say, no big deal, or that's just the way the world works. Th th that might be the way the world works, but that's not the way the world was designed to be by the Creator and one who made it. God brings liberation by exposing the full scope of sin. But then also, and now turning to the trumpet judgment, God mercifully warns of coming judgment. We have the seven trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9. Now, in what sense is this a warning and, and merciful? First, the first five trumpets, they hearken back to the plagues of Egypt recorded in the Exodus. You have the, trumpet, you have, uh, the trumpets bringing hail, the sea turns to blood, poisoned water, darkness, uh, locusts that are described as, as demons released from the abyss. This, is, this harkens back to the Exodus story. And the plagues in Exodus, they were warnings. They were warnings. They were opportunities for Pharaoh to repent and to release God's people. Also in the passage, you'll notice a third, a fraction is used over and over again. A third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers and waters, and a third of the sun, moon, and stars, a third of humanity. This fraction, a third, speaks to the, the, 
the mercy of God, that, it's, that um, He allows this for two-thirds to turn to Him. It's not half, it's not two-thirds destruction, but a third. This speaks to, to judgment being a call to repentance. And lastly, a trumpet. A trumpet was a warning device to signal incoming um, violence or war, in this case, incoming judgment. You know, when there's a, every, every Wednesday at noon, we, we hear the trumpet of the uh, tornado warning system being practiced. Now, if you hear that sound and it's not Wednesday at noon, then you need to take proper precautions. And if your phone starts ringing, you turn on the news and they're saying tornadoes coming through and it's coming right down your street and you're just chilling in your living room upstairs, sitting by the window, looking outside. The warnings were there. <laughs> You chose not to heed those signs. And this is one of the messages that is saying here that God, He's warning humanity. The very presence of evil and injustice, the very fact that we can look at it and see that as wrong, is a warning that one day the judge will make things right. Eugene Peterson, a pastor, a pastor he puts it this, this way. So we do everything we can to make light of judgment. We use every stratagem we can find to avoid dealing with the consequences of sin. But God will not let us off. He will not indulge our inattention. He will take us seriously. However practiced we become at tuning out sounds that we do not want to hear, including the sound of God's displeasure at sin, God finds new ways to penetrate our defensive deafness. God is sounding the trumpet that judgment is coming. But humanity, they don't repent. In chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of humanity, they did not repent of the works of their hands. Now, before we move on, we need to ask, who's the trumpet for? Who is this for? And, and here's the thing. It's for all of us. Again, remember a few weeks ago when we looked at the specific messages to each of the churches, Jesus was calling them to repent. Repentance is for everybody. Repentance is for anyone who ever has the temptation to sin. Anyone who ever has a horseman of the apocalypse, a little mini horseman inside their own soul. Anyone who ever wants to have evil masquerade as light. Anyone who ever is prone to just getting angry and wanting their way. Anyone who, who has a temptation to exploit others. I don't know about you, but I know for me, there are certainly those moments and those temptations. And again, as I mentioned before, we have one or two decisions. Either we can repent and we can embrace the lamb and the forgiveness and, and justification that he can bring, or we place ourselves on the judgment seat. We, we take judgment in our hands. And so the, the call to repentance is for us all. Again, he's, God is bringing justice through judgment. And one of the ways He does this is by offering the invitation to repent. He exposes the full scope of sin, makes space for repentance. And lastly, God's judgment allows us to put down the sword. Looking at the bold judgments, you know, numbers are symbolic for all three sets of divine judgments. In the seal judgments, the number four was representative of the, the four ends of the earth, the cosmic nature of, of this judgment. Last, we, we just mentioned in the trumpet judgments, a fraction representing God's mercy. In the bold judgments, there's no number. It signifies complete judgment. The bowl, it's pouring out God's judgment, God's wrath on the world. And this leads us to really think through, if we want justice, then we need a judge. There's no justice without a good and right judge. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who's a professor at Yale in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he put it this way, and this is a longer quote, so I want you to really track with me. It's very powerful what he says. He says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Do you hear that? The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. 
my thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Well, why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Injustice requires judgment. Miroslav Vols calls it out. He is precisely right. He's precisely right. You cannot have liberation. You cannot have peace. You cannot have nonviolence. And thus, there is a God who will ultimately judge. And so we end with that question. Who should be on that judgment seat? Who should be the ultimate judge? Because we need one. We need one. Should it be you and me? <laughs> you know, I, I, I struggle with making judgments decisions all the time. I, I struggle with making decisions on minor things like where to eat and what to wear and let alone big life decisions. I, I want sometimes, sometimes I want someone to just tell me what to do. Jay, do this. Thank you. I struggle sometimes to just make judgments for my own life on minor issues. The thought of putting myself in that position where I need to make the judgment calls for all the rights and wrongs of the world. I, and let alone, I have limited perspective. I do not see all. I do not know all. You know, right now with the election, which I'm, I'm preaching this right now on Friday morning. I don't know the results. Hopefully by the time you're watching this, we, we do. But right now there's widespread accusations of fraud, people sharing videos, supposedly showing people um, throwing away ballots. And, and here's the deal, either one of two things is happening here. Either one, there's people who want to make things look like there's fraud in order to have power. People who will claim fraud, people who will tweak the truth in their advantage for power, or there are people who are throwing out ballots to get the person in power who they want. Both are frauds. Both are deceptions. We might not know who's right. We might not know. But you know what? God knows. And think of all the acts of injustice that never made it on a screen. You know, recently we've had recordings of, of certain uh, killings and they bring to light some injustices that we all have to grapple with on in some level, whatever one's view of the situation. But think of all the acts of injustice, all the abuses that go unacknowledged by the world, the, hash, the names and hashtags that will never make it on Twitter the people who experience injustice and those supposed to protect them didn't believe them and minimize their pain. All the acts of injustice in the history of the world, Re Revelation is saying, God, He sees. He sees, He knows. In fact, the, the whole judgment, it comes as a response to the prayer of the persecuted. The prayer of the persecuted is seen in, in the text as an aroma going up to God. That the aroma of the persecuted, the aroma of the suffering, 
Those who experience the injustice of the world, their cries, their pain, make their way to God. And God, as one poet put it beautifully, God will reverse the thunder. God will reverse the thunder. He will bring the, the, the tears of the persecuted will lead to the power of God being thrown down on the persecutor. Jesus belongs on the judgment seat. He's the one who sees all, knows all. And lastly, we can trust him as the one on the judgment seat because he's the lamb. He goes under the sword. He is the judge who was judged in our place so that we could be made right with God. He's the lamb who was killed, the lamb who was slain. And this teaches us that Jesus is more loving, more compassionate, and more gracious than you and I. God's judgment. Revelation is telling the story of the new exodus, the new liberation, the new deliverance. And what we see is that justice requires judgment. God exposes the full scope of sin. God provides mercy. And lastly, God is the judge we can ultimately trust because he was judged in our place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a God who sees, who hears, who knows. You know. You know and you see and you acknowledge the injustices of the world. There's so much we don't understand. Perspective, all of our perspectives, my perspective is always shaped by just my limited experience. But I can trust that you, your wisdom, and your knowing is enough. I don't need to be the judge. I can allow you to be the judge. Help us to have the courage and humility to come to that place, especially in our day and age today. It's in your Son, our King's name we pray. Amen. All right, let us respond to what we've heard through song. Uh, we know that though the world is broken uh, by the effects of sin around us, God is still working for the good of his people according to his purposes. So we know God is good all the time. Let's proclaim that right now. Oh my, you have a given.
My name is Jacob Beach, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Scarlet City Church. And let me be the last one to encourage you as you go from here this morning. From 2 Corinthians 13, 14 in the NIV. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you. Go in peace.